0: I'm Tom Clarison, and I am the Digital and Preservation Services Senior Consultant at Lyricist. and I'll be moderating today's session. Thank goodness I won't be presenting like I did yesterday with the moderator. Uh, one of the best features of the Institute of Museum and Library Services Connecting to Collections initiative, I think, is the fact that we have so much freedom in the states that we're working with and the territories uh, to really provide in designing the uh, type of program we want to put together. Um, It's been great to see the variety of surveys, uh, site surveys, focus groups, everything that people have been talking about over the past few days, the fact that some people did things remotely and some people traveled throughout various states. So there's a lot of freedom there, and then there's even further freedom when the implementation grants come into play, where people are able to actually their plans and have a great opportunity to take things from their findings from their planning grants and move them forward and implement those across their state so one of the things that I wanted to do with the session today was to let everyone have a chance to see some of the great tools that have been developed either during some of the planning grant periods or in the early parts of some of the implementation phases and these are definitely tools that I think you will want to use once you have a chance to see them. We've got a set of presenters today who have a wide variety of projects and really a wide spectrum of project activities, and I'm going to take just a moment to introduce each of them to you in the order in which they'll present. Christine Wiseman has been Preservation Services Manager at the Georgia Archives since 2002, where she's responsible for managing preservation, conservation, and digital reformatting activities. She's actively involved in the statewide and regional disaster planning activities in the southeast. She was one of, uh, part of the earliest teams to inspect damage to records in Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina. She was involved in developing the PREP, the pocket response plan, uh, which you probably heard her cheering yesterday when in the one presentation that slide came up. Uh, So that was a good support there. She has uh, been instrumental in bringing Heritage Preservation's Alliance for Response Forums both to Atlanta and then down the road to Savannah, and she formed a group called HERA, which is the Atlanta Area Disaster Network. The other thing that you probably will recognize her voice from, even if you've never seen Christine before, is that she served as a subject matter expert for the development of the IPER, Intergovernmental Preparedness for Essential Records Curriculum, and is a trainer on her team. So she's been doing a lot of distance education activities. Christine was Project Manager for the IMLS Statewide Preservation Planning Project initiative and i love their little logo so we'll be seeing that on her slides and she's serving also as the 2011 president of the society of georgia archivists and finally is also an adjunct instructor for clayton state university's new masters in archival studies program so she has a wide outreach to the folks in the georgia area as far as preservation is concerned our second speaker will be wendy franklin who's the manager of museum services for california state parks responsible for collections management policy formulation and leadership of the museum collections programs including training and technical support for curators and collection managers throughout the california state park system her areas of special interest include historic house museum operations and preservation of collections One of the things that we wanted to have Wendy on our program for today was that she serves on the steering committee of the California Preservation Program that provides information, education, and expert advice on preservation to libraries, archives, museums, historical societies, and even in a further sort of ripple of outreach, uh, records repositories in California. Prior to the current position she's in, Wendy served in a variety of curatorial positions with the California State Parks, including two years as chief curator for the Leland-Stanford Mansion State Historic Park, and eight years as curator of the California State Capitol Museum. Paula Work is the registrar and curator of zoology at the Maine State Museum, and she holds an undergraduate degree in biology from the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and a doctoral degree in geology from the University of Iowa. Different, I think, than many of us who are here for our program today. So I just I wanted to point that out. Um, over the past twenty years, Paula has worked in a wide variety of museums, ranging from scientific repositories to private nonprofit institutions and state museums. And this has given her a really broad perspective on historical, scientific, and archaeological collections, and this ability to compare and contrast approaches to collections care really central to some of the things that they are working on in maine she's been involved in maine statewide connecting to collections planning grant uh, for the past two years and the purpose of the grant is to develop both a statewide consortium for collections care and to implement a values assessment tool to help institutions create an active dialogue with potential support communities so that is something that i think all of us will want to listen to that we might try to replicate 49 or 55 times uh, And then finally, Lee Grinstead, the digital services consultant at Lyricis, has more than 20 years of experience working in museums, overseeing collections, and conducting collections inventories. During her nearly half a decade with the Collaborative Digitization Program, or CDP, her love of project management, grants work, and administration has been very well tested. She's had extensive experience in digital and connecting to collections project. And her years of working with museum collections gave her the drive to be a hands-on advocate for digitization. Lee's been responsible for training many libraries and cultural heritage professionals in preservation planning and digitization best practices. Before we start, be sure to be on the lookout, be on the alert for some of the... and stewardship campaigns that uh, Wendy will be discussing, the Values Assessment Tool that I already mentioned, uh, Paula will be working on, and uh, Lee is going to show us some workshop video clips uh, that are available online and talk a bit about the continuing
1: That is um, more of a reason for you all to come to Georgia and see it for yourself (laughs) if you haven't already. Georgia is a very diverse state. Um, we have mountains, we have a beautiful coastal region, and just about everything in between, just for a little context. Um, Georgia is the largest state east of the Mississippi, uh, geographically speaking. Um, we have 159 counties. Um, we have you know, several large cities, of course, Atlanta. There's sort of Atlanta and the rest of Georgia. There's a little tension there, I think. Um, and within the state, there's a great love for history and many, many, cultural institutions that run the, the gamut. We have large, um, sophisticated, very sophisticated museums, um, all the way down to very, you know, small mom-and-pop uh, historical societies. So, um, uh, an art project uh, we call the Healthy Collections Initiative. I believe we're in the first round of the, um, of the planning grants back in 2008, 2009. Our partners were very typical um, of partners that we've we've heard about in, uh, in other projects. Maybe a few differences, we tried to get a lot of other state agencies involved, including um, we tried to pull in our tourism department, which falls under the Georgia Department of Economic Development, um, and also um, Georgia, the Emergency Management Agency, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. With any cooperative project, of course, as you all know, some some of the partners were more directly involved than others, that's just the reality of it. And if you remember back in 2008, that's pretty much when the economy started to um, go south. So some of the, you know, participation was affected by that as well. So a little caveat. So I'm going to focus on the last item here on this slide, this, this tool that we developed, the stair-step tool, but I thought I would just provide a quick overview of the whole project um, for context. But I'm going to go through that pretty quickly because our project was you know, fairly similar to some of the ones we've heard about already um, over the past two days. Um, our primary goals were to identify all of the collecting institutions within the state. We already we had something to build on, luckily, in Georgia. We had something called our Historical uh, Organizations Directory. That's been, that's been around for at least 10, 15 years, I believe. That was funded by the, by the Georgia's GRAB. Georgia SHRAB, excuse me, which we call GRAB, the Georgia Historical Records Advisory Board. It started out really as a typewritten list of institutions around the state, but then it evolved into um, a searchable online uh, database that, you know, was somewhat out of date. Of course, it's hard to keep those things um, up to date, so our goal was to um, update it and then add more institutions to it. We wanted to add, um, try to really reach every institution if we could uh, and um, have more museums. Very, li- It was sort of library focused at the time. So that was one of the goals. Um, we also were going to do a survey, develop and test a survey instrument which evolved into um, an assessment tool which I'll talk about more. Just a little bit about the directory. Um, we have now about six hundred fifty organizations uh... in that directory around the state i know there's more so there's just this the work is never finished on this sort of thing it's one of those things you have gotta keep maintaining it as soon as we finish updating of course we found records that were out of date <laughs> but that happens anywhere um, this directory is searchable on our website there's the link right up there we also added um, photographs of some of the institutions another thing we added um, during this project, was we collected um, emergency contact information from all as many of the institutions as we could. We put that information in the database. It's behind the firewall, so it's not accessible to the public, but we use it in our disaster response activities. We also collected GIS coordinates for all the institutions and provided that data to GMA, our Georgia Emergency Management Agency, and they are using that in. Um, a statewide um, system that they're developing for response. I think it's modeled on one they have here in Virginia. So that's still I think in beta form. So that's how we kind of we drew in the emergency response um, aspect to it. Our survey was essentially the Heritage Health Index plus a little more. We wanted to drill a little bit deeper into collections care activities um, to see how Georgia, a lot of institutions in Georgia responded by many of the small ones did not, so we wanted to get, um, drill down a little bit more. We looked at the same, similar categories, and what was a little different about it is this stair-step um, concept, which I'll talk about. That was tw- 19 of the of 64 questions in all, 19 of those questions um, um, comprised this, um, st- the stair-step portion of it. The survey was distributed um, in paper form and also we had it online via SurveyMonkey. And I'll explain uh, the stair-step more in a few minutes, but we ended up surveying, um, because this was fairly involved and it had required a lot of manual um, interpretation and analysis, we ended up picking a random Sort of statistically valid sample from our database. So we ended up surveying about 90 institutions, and we—it was sort of random, but we also kind of targeted them because we wanted to make sure we had distribution of different types of institutions. So we wanted to make sure we had, you know, some archives, some public libraries, uh, museums, et cetera. So this is how it broke down in terms of the numbers. And then I'm just going to. Go over some of our some of the results, and these are very similar, I think, to what other um, surveys found. We looked at institutional size, and if I were to do this again, we would definitely probably break that down more because you know the vast majority were small, but we rated small um, as budgets less than five hundred thousand per year, and that was. Probably you know too high of, a, of an increment, many of the respondents budgets were less than ten thousand dollars that fit into that small category so that 's pretty typical, not surprising. Um, we also found um, that very similar to some of the other other studies, uh, the vast majority seventy seven percent had less than two staff devoted to preservation activities, very few had um, a line item for preservation in their budgets and um, more than 64 percent had done no formal preservation planning. So pretty similar to what other states found in terms of those numbers. In terms of emergency planning, still a large number did not have an emergency plan even though we've done so much disaster training in the state. It was a little better than the Heritage Health Index um, national results, but still 73% um, did not have an emergency plan that included collections. So more work to be done, of course, in that area. Um, in Georgia, we've gotten a little complacent in some areas, about, especially about hurricanes. They tend to miss us, but um, but actually one of the most severe hurricanes to hit hit the U.S. came right in the Georgia coast and that was in the 1890s and that's sort of out of recent memory. So certainly we can get a direct hit, though in Savannah they're extremely well prepared I will say. But there's always more to do in this area. Um, These were two results that we thought were interesting and it sort of does um, reflect what we saw, we see in the field just out visiting institutions and talking to people. Uh many, many organizations are doing collections maintenance and repair and stabilization activities in-house. They need to, they have to, they're doing these things, they want to help their collections, but very few have had training. So that definitely um, sort of a red flag and also brings up a, a training need. They're gonna do it, so they might as well get some training. Uh and in another system, so this is a little different than maybe in some of the other states. The the majority of institutions do have HVAC systems, where in the south you almost really can't exist without air conditioning. Um, But, the very few are monitoring and checking, so that was another um, training need that we saw. And then um, the majority of the institutions rated, this is not surprising, analog, moving, image, and recorded sound collections of some of the um, collections at uh, highest risk around the state and then we asked people to rate their to assess their own um, perception of their priorities and they cited um, funding staffing long-range planning and disaster planning so definitely um, related to the findings that we found as well so that was just that's an overview of the actual um, survey the Now to the part I'm really going to focus on, which is this um, stair-step concept. And what we did is we designated 19, turned out to be 19, of the 64 questions as these sort of stair-step questions. And the concept was those questions had four responses and each response um, mapped to a different level. So the first response would be step one, minimal level, and I'll explain what these are. The second response would be basic level, the third would be advanced, and the fourth would be comprehensive. Sort of like one of those quizzes that you'll see in a magazine. (laughs) And we didn't identify which questions in the survey were these stair-step questions so that we hoped it would seem transparent, you know, the users couldn't really tell that that's what we were doing. That we didn't hide it from them, but that's the way we, we wanted it to be um, not too obvious. So step one we defined as, um, for that category or that question, um, institutions are just beginning to establish preservation awareness within their organization. There's minimal preservation activity. And that institution was just beginning to develop an awareness of the needs. So there may not be a disaster plan. They haven't done any formal planning, for example. Um, you know, very low level of preservation collections care activities. Step two, their program's growing a bit. Um, They've begun to build sort of the building blocks of of a program. They have some basic activities in place. For example, they may have environmental and lighting controls. They've done some disaster planning. um, Raising awareness, but they may um, have not done formal planning, for example. Step three, uh, preservation is a little more advanced. These are more sophisticated uh, programs. They've done formal planning. They've got resources allocated. They've got activities going on in various categories. They may be doing monitoring. They may even have a full-time preservation professional or a conservator. Um, they've got a disaster plan, that sort of... So uh, preservation is advancing within their organization. And then the top level would be the, uh, what we would call a comprehensive program. It's a well-established program. They're looking at all the different categories of needs and issues. They've got a plan, staffing. Um, this is like the ideal. Resources. They've reta- obtained grants. So it's a really uh, well-established preservation program. So what we did is we took the um, responses to each of these 19 questions and we averaged them together, basically. We gave them them a value, one, two, three, and four, and then um, averaged them out and we developed a scale for the rating. Now we realized that the questions fell into different categories. So we had to make sure things were not weighted in a way that you know that the information was helpful to people so they may have a very they may be um, well established in one area but haven't really done any disaster planning but yet they've done a lot of um, collections care so you don't want to weight it in a sense that um, you know so it's useful so they get information in these reports that we generated that is tailored to where their needs are so these were the categories the questions fell into And we went through our advisory committee and decided, well, we feel like emergency planning, environmental control are probably two of the most important categories. So we had more questions in those areas so that the survey was kind of self-weighted. And then some of the other categories, you may have only had one or two questions. So that's how we sort of figured that out. So it didn't get too complicated in terms of calculations because we had to do this all manually. makes sense so basically and then we just we had a range so for step one we averaged all the questions Um, if your total score was between 0.5 and 1.59 you're in step one Um, step two was between 1.6 and 2.59 etc and this is how it sort of played out and we did an overall rating for all the questions and we also looked at each category So the majority of the institutions ended up on step two. There were also a number in step three, and just um, two outliers, one in step one and one in step four. Now I think if we did this statewide and had every institution fill them out, I think the distribution would be a little different because we, I won't say we targeted, but we did the institutions that were interested in participating in this were institutions we in some cases had relationships with and might have been a little more sophisticated than some of the other ones. We tried to get a variety as much as we could but I'd like to try to do it more comprehensively and see how the distribution um, falls falls a little differently. Um, So by type of institution we had most, the most museums on step three, which I thought was interesting. They are, then the inference there is they're devoting more resources to um, collection care than some of the other institutions. The, the um, academic libraries, which are all usually special collections within an academic library, and archives were more split. Public libraries were primarily step two, which is not surprising because preservation is not the highest priority um, in a public library unless they have local history collections of course which many of them do in Georgia and then not surprisingly the um, smaller institutions tended to be on the lower steps again less resources less staffing for preservation activities so then what we did is we wanted again this, sur- this survey to be more than just a survey and one of the w- ways that we did that and we sold it to people to participate um, is that we provided um, a report at the end of, of this process and we, the way we designed this is it was sort of it was, it's not the same thing as going out and doing a site survey at an institution because we didn't do on-site visits, but we did develop sort of a customized report for each institution based on their um, survey responses. And the way we did that is in each section, it was intellectual control, environmental control, preservation management, um, disaster preparedness, training. We had um, some boilerplate text sort of introducing what that section meant and um, the characteristics that we were looking at. And then we gave them their score for that section. So if they were in the two, level two for that section, we had some bullet points already prepared. So if you're step two for intellectual control, these are the things you would you could do possibly to move up to the next level. So they're sort of g- general, but it's also as customized as you can kind of do it without actually going to the institution. So we had those and we brought it all together sort of through spreadsheets. and. <laughs> Again, each one kind of had to be had to be built individually, and we made sure every institution knew that the information was confidential. It wasn't going to be shared with anybody. We weren't um, publishing who was on because we didn't want it to be political. We weren't going to reveal who's on step one and who's on step four. It wasn't anything to be perceived as a grade. It's really a tool for us to use to help institutions move up the scale. So that that was how we looked at it. explained it to people. So each institution got a report. Um, and they also included links to resources um, and information. There, there were about you know eight page reports, not real lengthy, but it just enough information to get people um, um, motivated and to help them set priorities, um, maybe even help them justify funding help them justify, you know, getting more resources within their own institution. And those went out, so, okay. So since then, I have um, polled some of these institutions to get feedback, and we did get some good feedback um, from some of the institutions uh, that they've used these reports to help set priorities. Um, they felt like they were they were very useful and they did they have gotten back to me um, with some of the um, successes they've had. some people have been able to buy um, environmental monitoring equipment and they've been to, able to help with their their planning efforts overall and, to, and they felt like it helped break down some of these issues into smaller more manageable um, chunks and then the idea was they could come back and do the survey again after time had passed or after um, and then hopefully see them move up to a higher level. So what we hoped to do for implementation was to, uh, because it was so time consuming to put this together, to automate it, um, automate the tool so that the reports would generate automatically and then then we would follow up and we could target um, services, so to speak, based on the results. So, for example, maybe the Step 1 institutions, we would do more targeted site visits, because presuming they would need more hand-holding and on-site assistance. Um, step 2 institutions might need training at a particular level. The higher-level institutions could have more advanced um, training. So that was what we were thinking about um, in terms of you know, <laughs> sustaining this program and for implementation. So some of the just to wrap up, some of the challenges um, we found overall were you know like I mentioned keeping our list of contacts up to date, identifying more organizations, and keeping this going because we did such a great job with getting this our database up to date and already now it's out of date. (laughs) So that's that's an ongoing challenge. Um, We did find that um, we did give incentives, including the the um, report. We also uh gave out disaster wheels to people that filled out the survey and also um, we gave out field guides to the first uh, 10 surveys that re- we received back. So incentives were great, which I know has come up in other projects. And certainly um, testing, a lot of testing and uh, we, had, we did a lot of iterations of the survey and had various people try it out, force and test it. Helped a lot to focus and refine um, refine our questions and our approach. So that was our approach, and we felt like it was a a successful program, and we'd like to try to um, broaden it and implement it more fully. And oh, all of the and if anybody you know wants to use any of these tools or the idea, please run with it. (laughs) I mean, it was labor-intensive to do it manually, and there's maybe you know a way that it can be automated. That was the tricky part. Um, But we do have a website and that's the URL right there and there's the survey questions are on the site there are there's a sample report where you know the name has been stripped out and the final report for our project is also on that website
0: thank you sure
2: Hi, I'm Wendy Franklin with California State Parks and it's my pleasure to be with you here today to talk with you about tools that you could use from the Californians Connecting to Collections project. California took on the Connecting to Collections challenge because it's clear that our state truly needed a preservation program and a plan for its heritage collections. We have tens of thousands of museums, libraries, state park museums, historical society, sites, buildings, and altogether we've counted hundreds of millions of cultural artifacts and documents. So it really is kind of overwhelming. And add to that, California is well known for its disasters. Um this is the 2003 Cedar Fire which burned near San Diego for days and was extremely destructive. That fire for example destroyed the historic Dyer House at Cuyamaca Rancho State Park. And the archaeological collections that were stored there were literally left in the ashes. You can see the Oya there in the in the rubble. Um, We also have earthquakes, as you know. Um, There was an earthquake in 2007 in Paso Robles that actually killed one person in that town. And not far from Paso Robles is Hearst Castle. And this is one slide of some of the damage that was done to artifacts at Hearst Castle in that earthquake. We also have the more routine challenges like all of you. Um, That white fuzzy stuff is mold. Um, This picture was taken last year at Angel Island State Park where the archives room was inundated because of a leak in a roof on a historic building that hadn't been maintained um, due to budget cuts. Um, So we face many different kinds of challenges and I've heard many of the same things from all of you. Um, So, a partnership of several organizations similar to partnerships in other Connecting to Collections projects took on this challenge. Um, We have the California Association of Museums, the California State Park System, the California Historical Society, um, the State Library, the State Archives, the Balboa Art Conservation Center, which is a regional conservation center, and the California Preservation Program um, are all the partners in our Connecting to Collections project. We're now in our implementation phase, um, which we're doing based on our planning uh, phase, which was completed. So here we are. We're real people. And we, (laughs) we actually get together twice a year for face-to-face meetings and I do think that that um, has been one of the keys to our success. Um, It really makes a difference. We all have action items and we have to report on them when we meet together. Um, So there's nothing like a deadline um, to really get you going. There's two key elements in our implementation project um, based on what was identified in our planning. Uh, Providing safe conditions for collections um, includes disaster preparedness workshops, disaster networking workshops which is the next step that um, allows people who already have a plan to come together and get to know their neighbors and work on regional disaster networking and practicing their plans. Um, we have a 24-7 emergency hotline. People can call if they have a collection disaster. There's also email and telephone support. And then under the second category, marshalling public and private support, um, we will be delivering preservation fundraising workshops. And we've just launched a stewardship campaign for directed at trustees. So those are kind of our two areas. Um, that we're doing. but Today I want to focus on two tools that I hope you can use. Um, you've already heard a little bit about the Pocket Response Plan. I'm going to talk about how we have adapted that for California and um, some creative ways that some of our folks have, have used that plan. And then the other tool I'm going to talk about is the new Collections Stewardship Toolkit, part of our trustee campaign. Well, disaster workshops are a key component of what we've been doing um, in California. And um, we offer a two-day workshop where participants come away with a fully developed pocket response plan. Um, This is the little envelopes. I know some of you have these. Um, And I want to again acknowledge Christine Wiseman, um, one of our panelists today, who was part of the team that developed this original idea um, here's the, the little plan, and you may know that what you pull out of here is a folded up eight and a half by fourteen piece of paper with all the information you need. I'll be talking more about what's on it. Um, I talked to Christine about how this got developed, and uh, she told me that she was involved with the Council of State Archivists Emergency Preparedness Initiative, and was brainstorming with a few of her colleagues um, when one of them, um, and I wrote her name down, Maria Holden from the New York State Archives had this idea of a fold-out plan that you could keep in your pocket like a subway map that would have everything you need on it. And um, so they worked on that idea and Vicki Walsh from the Council of State Archivists designed it and they all worked together on the content. So it was designed for governments, but it's been adapted for many different types of institutions. So, what is this prep? Um, Well, it looks like a lot of little tiny writing, and that's true. Um, It is a two-sided piece of paper. One side has contact information for key individuals. Your response team, your local contacts who will be able to help you in an emergency, Um, key vendors who could provide uh, freezers or whatever else you might need from them, Um, and others in your organization and your community um, who will need to know about a disaster if it happens at your institution. The other side of the PrEP has an emergency response checklist that you can use so that you'll remember in an emergency what's the most important thing to try to get out, what to salvage, um, what to try to rescue. So on my plan, for example, on the side A, I've got my response team, all their phone numbers, cell phones, everything. Um, one of our curators boasts that he has his fire, his local fire chief's cell phone number that he doesn't give to anybody. Um, And so you really want your key folks here. I have my director because in addition to my people who are gonna respond, I also need to call the director if an emergency happens. Um, And I've got, for example, some conservators that we've worked with in different areas. I've got our paintings conservator, um, someone we've worked with with textiles and photos so that at a glance, um, I can give them a call. So that's one side of the plan. And then on the other, I have the key actions that need to be taken in the first 24 to 72 hours following an emergency. Um, I have highlighted here some of the key collections that in our facility we would want to try to evacuate. So for example, um, for us that includes some of the Donner party items related to Sutter's Fort in Sacramento. Um, Some of the old ledgers from important hotels in some of our communities in California. Um, So it's all very uh, much uh, customized for each institution. So that's the prep and of course it's designed to fit into this wonderful little Tyvek envelope and be put into your pocket or your purse. Um, Now our workshops include hands-on salvage Exercises and the development of a complete disaster plan. Um, this is really the heart of it. But there it is important to know that there are appendices that go with our pocket plan that include much more complete information. But I think it's the it's the prep. That's what we call it for short. Pocket response plan is a prep. Um, and I think it's the ease that people can use this and customize it that has made it possible for so many folks to adopt it and get a disaster plan going. Um, How many people here have actually used this tool? I'm just curious. Oh, that's great. Good. Um, Well, I hope the rest of you will, will consider it as an element in your programs. Um, I have a couple of examples of the ways that it's been adapted um, in the California program and other places. Um, Here's a really simple idea. You simply highlight some information on the plan that you want to be sure to see easily. Perhaps it's key people, perhaps it's certain collections and their priorities. And if you use your plan, if you fold it up and put it in your ID badge holder, you can even see it without even taking it out or unfolding it. So I love that idea. Um, Some people have really developed side B of the pocket response plan um, to be visually very easy to use. This is a floor plan that's actually been dropped into side B um, that shows the the living and dining room in a historic house, key places that need to um, have collections removed or salvaged. Um, You can take that one step farther like this institution did and even include thumbnail photos that are keyed to the floor plan. So people have been very creative about the way they've used this plan and it's become much more than just a list of phone numbers. I know that other states have adopted this format for their disaster uh, planning efforts. I know Pennsylvania, Delaware, I'm sure there are others as well that have formally adopted this plan, but um, it's been very successful for us. So as I mentioned, the PREP is not a complete disaster plan. Um, It gets you the first response by key people and a good stretch of the way, but the complete disaster plan should include several appendices Uh, with detailed information on roles and responsibilities, on locations of emergency systems, collection priorities, um, and more. The prep is sort of like our jumping-off point. And some of the um, ways that people have developed appendices have really changed. For example, using pictures and floor plans to make sure that first responders have something in the Knox box that they can see to know what to go and try to get if they're able to. Um, I like this example from the Antelope Valley Poppy Reserve where we have a visitor center where the appendix about shut off locations includes pictures of really where do you find that water shut off and where's the electrical shut off. This even has a picture of where the fire extinguisher is and the radio that can be used to contact staff that are out in the reserve. Um, so, our folks have used some creative, creative ideas. Um, our implementation workshops are based on a program that was funded by NEH that some of you may have heard about called the Western States and Territories Preservation Assistance Service. It's a very long name. We call it West Pass for short. And um, we were funded to do disaster planning workshops from 2007 through 2009, they were very successful. So we built on that success for our Connecting to Collections workshops. No need to reinvent the wheel. And although our Connecting to Collections data is not in yet because we're in the middle of delivering workshops, I wanted to share the data from that past effort um, through the West Pass funding. Um, Our success rate in getting people to complete their disaster plans has really been phenomenal. Um, We gave 10 workshops throughout the state of California, um, and there are now 115 completed disaster plans throughout the state. And that's what the the little points show you, is how widespread they are. That meant that 95% of our workshop attendees actually completed a plan. So we're really proud of that, and it's clear that the pocket response plan was really part of that success. Uh, really made it possible. The format, I think, because it's not overwhelming, really um, allowed people to do that. And they did more. As I mentioned, the pocket plan, sort of a jumping off point. Um, We encourage our workshop participants to take the next steps when they get back home. And one of those is training for staff and volunteers. Um, It's a natural outcome of completing the pocket response plan. So, a couple of examples. After a recent disaster plan workshop, one curator organized fire extinguisher training uh, for her staff and volunteers um, in the Antelope Valley Indian Museum in Lancaster, California. Another museum manager uh, set up water salvage training, much like what he had done in our workshop, uh, for his staff and volunteers at the Morro Bay Museum of Natural History. Okay. Um, another benefit of completing the prep um, and doing a disaster plan is building those relationships with first responders. And so, um, in a way of carrying that out, our curator in Sonoma, California, invited the firefighters to come and tour 11 different historic buildings. So they were looking for all the important exits entries, and they even tested an old fire hydrant, which we weren't really sure if it worked, behind a maintenance shop and they found out it did work. So there's another source of water that they might be able to use. Our curator has her red folder in hand and her pocket response plan and she made some good friends at the fire department um, by offering those tours. Um, Now you can get the template for the pocket response plan in a couple of places. And I did bring a handout. I don't have quite enough for everybody, but I'd be happy to mail it to you later. So these are very long links, but just know that there are a couple different versions. Our website has one. You can also get it from the Council of State Archivists. And then very briefly, I just want to show you our collection stewardship toolkit. Um, This is one of our newest um, outreach items from our uh, Connecting to Collections implementation project. It's a stewardship guide for trustees and we're really trying to reach trustees and directors of heritage organizations. Um, We have a short guide on the role of collection stewardship and opportunities to promote care of collections. Um, It includes the IMLS um, and Heritage Preservation Capitalize on Collections booklet and it also includes a page of staff tips and free workshops that are available. Our primary objective is to raise awareness and to reach trustees um, and try to show them some of the successes that other organizations in California have used um, built around raising money for preservation of collections. Um, So it's too soon to know the success. We just launched this a few weeks ago but um, we'll be looking at how many people um, come to our website and how many people ask for further information from the written materials we've mailed to them. So Californians Connecting to Collections um, is really intended to serve as a test bed. Um, we look at this as a test for an ongoing preservation service. We hope to continue offering and we want to create a culture of preservation in California. Um, We're hoping to re-educate managers and directors so that resources are committed to preservation on an ongoing basis. And so that's really what, what this is all about. And we hope that you'll come and visit our website and learn more about what we're doing. Um, I did at the end of the session come up if you'd like a handout with these links um, or you can give me your card. I'll be happy to to send one to you. Thank you very much.
3: our project was part of a planning grant that is not yet complete. Uh, we applied for the planning grant in 2009 for the state of Maine. I want to talk a little bit about how that came about before I get into the main presentation because it's important. Um, but the reason the planning grant hasn't moved forward is because of staff changes and loss of staff. So I'm going to talk about this tool and then talk about the overview of what we're trying to do in order to make it work a little bit further. Um, The partners for this planning grant were Bangor Public Library, the L.C. Bates Museum, which in Maine plays a crucial role for institutions, and what I mean by that is as many of you spoke, there's cultural differences between different parts of the state, and we have two mains. And there's the coastal Maine, and then there's northern Maine. And northern Maine already feels marginalized, but somehow the L.C. Bates Museum and Deborah Staber have been able to create a means of rolling out um, training and programs that has been successful in combination with the Maine Archives and Museums Association which is also a partner in this grant then the Maine Historical Society Maine Humanities Council Maine State Archives and the Museum and the OSher map library um, the state of Maine has at least 280 historical societies uh, the libraries are act right now independently of the other Cultural institutions. Um, Our archives and museums work very well together because of that MAM organization. And so we're trying to bridge the gap, adding in the library portion because archives and museums work very well together. Now, this idea comes out because we wanted to take things further. We all have limited resources, those resources are going to get even more limited. How do you deal with the fact that there are things of value everywhere, but those value items occur at the local level and are important to local individuals, the regional level and the national level? And this is a tool we're trying to put into place to address that. I'm going to read some of this just because I think it, it articulates it better than I would otherwise. Institutions hold collections in the public trust, making the public our partners as primary stakeholders for these collections. But without the tools for informed dialogue, this purpose is lost. Over the past two decades, the museum community has come to understand the urgency in defining how collections are relevant to society. This has resulted in an understanding that museum collections can be assigned many values. This is a useful approach for creating dialogue between a collections holding institution and potential stakeholders. The purpose of this presentation is to present the components of the values assessment approach to collections that can readily be used to define the importance of a collection for a chosen stakeholder community. Values assessment. What do we mean when we say collections can be assigned many values? Museums hold collections in the public trust, so the values assigned to collections stem from the many uses of collections by society, and the significance that society assigns to those collections. Several easy-to-understand values are monetary, aesthetic, or educational. We saw some others in some of the presentations yesterday. A values assessment approach will help an institution define which value or value sets best reflect the reasons that they strive to maintain their collections within a given community and to provide a tool to rank these values in order of significance. Once these inherent values are understood, advocacy for collections based on those targeted values can start. How do you determine value? No one value is more important than another. Rather, the value you assign to your collection should be linked to relevance. Both the value chosen and the relevance will change as you target one constituency group versus another. A group of educators will look at your collection and immediately ask, how can I use these objects to teach? Well, an artist will look at the same material and think, what most catches my eye and why? In addition, not all objects within a collection will be assigned the same level of value. Rather, some objects will be a very high value within a category, while others will be assigned a very low value. A case in point would be two taxidermy mounts, one laden with arsenic, one without. If you're an educator, the taxidermy mount that is minus arsenic is the one you're going to use to teach so you don't poison your kids. It has higher educational value. Finally, not all objects should be assigned all values. Rather, you should determine which value or value sets allows for the broadest buy-in from a potential constituency group. An object that is nationally significant because it is rare is equally significant or maybe even more so to your local or regional community. So what do we want to look for for value categories? By necessity, most institutions will find that not all objects or specimens can be assigned a unique value or values. Instead, it's helpful to categorize objects or specimens within broader categories. Category 1 would be primary value objects. Replacement is not possible. These are iconic to your institution. If you lose these items, your institution is forever changed. If you think about those things, that are category 1 objects. Category two, secondary value objects. Replacement is costly or difficult, but results in minimal loss of the intended value or values of an object or specimen. Secondary value objects are often collected or chosen for a specific purpose, such as an exhibition. At the Maine State Museum, we have the Maiden Main exhibit, which features the Spears Mill, which is three floors of an operating mill. It would be very costly and difficult to replace part of the Spears Mill, But if we did it, the the exhibition value would not change. The public would never notice. It's the primary reason we have it. In science, examples of secondary value objects are replacement types called topotypes or rare or endangered species. Tertiary value objects. Replacement is possible, but results in the loss of some of the objects or specimens inherent value or values. Archival documents often fall, fall into this category because often it is the information in the document that's of primary importance and the object itself is of secondary importance not always you know if it's Abraham Lincoln's Bible then it's both another example which helps emphasize the difference between primary value objects and tertiary value objects for the Maine State Museum would be the portraits of two main governors William King who was Maine's first governor and Angus King who was Maine's 72nd governor the loss of Williams King's portrait would be altering for my institution The loss of Angus King would probably result in a phone call and ask for another sitting. (laughs) Category four, quaternary value objects. Replacement is possible, and there's minimal loss to the object or specimen's value or values. Examples of quaternary value objects are numerous, but they are situation driven. An exhibition of a 1920s dining room could allow for placement of period pieces, especially if they were in there originally because they didn't have much other documentation. Remember, no one value is more important than another. Rather, it is a way to recognize the different demands placed on an institution by society and the value society is assigning to those those demands. Assignment to primary value objects in no way diminishes the need to define values for the other three categories. Not only are these categories inherently important, but in most cases, these value categories are not interchangeable, and their presence allows an institution to reach out to additional user groups. For example, it is unlikely because of their inherent value that you would choose a category one value for teaching, but you will choose other objects in your collection for that exact purpose. User groups. How do you define those? It is often easier to categorize your collections by who uses them and for what purpose. This will get you started in finding use categories or user groups. For example, the Maine State Museum's paper archives are regularly assessed by genealogists. Many of your archives are. So one use category in our institution would be for genealogical research. The easiest way to define your user groups is to put out a log and ask the visitor, why are they there? One of the most obvious use categories are created, once the most obvious use categories are created, you'll want to brainstorm for any other potential categories you may have inadvertently missed. Don't worry about finding them all as this will be an ongoing process you'll go back to again and again. There are no right or wrong Answers. It's just a way to look at your collections in order to seek out new areas of possible support. The next step is to define the level of relationship that the institution currently has with each of these user groups. Relationship types. Type 1 users. Mission driven. The institution actively solicits these users in an effort to meet its mission. These users are the core of the institution's purpose and should be carefully defined. Type 2 users, value added. The museum provides services to these users and it, with an expectation that these users will provide tangible results back to the institution. Although these users may well fall under the institution mission, they are separated from Type 1 users by an expectation of a reciprocal relationship. Researchers, educators are primary examples of Category 2 users. Type 3 users, special interest groups. Considered representative of a subset of the general public by meeting the needs of the Category 3 users, the museum can create a a direct venue for reaching a critical and often supportive audience. Type 4 users, non-targeted. These users are no less important, but the required resources are available to meet the needs of this user category by actively meeting Type 1, 2, and 3 users. Examples of this would be walk-ins and web-based users. These users should be regularly assessed to determine if a more active relationship can or should be established. Type 5 users, unassessed users. These are potential future users we have or have not yet identified. There's no active relationship presently existing between our institution and these users, so there's no basis for assessment. I have a great example of this that I'm going to introduce later, don't let me forget. SCOPE OF INFLUENCE AND INSTITUTIONAL RELEVANCE. LASTLY, AN ORGANIZATION MUST DETERMINE THE SCOPE OF INFLUENCE AND THE INSTITUTIONAL RELEVANCE FOR ITS OBJECTS. BOTH SCOPE OF INFLUENCE AND INSTITUTIONAL RELEVANCE ARE AGAIN DEPENDENT UPON THE VALUE OR VALUES YOU ARE DISCUSSING, AS WELL AS THE USER GROUP OR CONSTITUENCY YOU HAVE DECIDED TO TARGET. AT FIRST GLANCE, SCOPE OF INFLUENCE APPEARS MORE STRAIGHTFORWARD, BEING NOTED WITH a SIMPLE (coughs) LISTING SUCH AS INTERNATIONAL, NATIONAL, REGIONAL, OR LOCAL. But in some cases, scope of influence may need to be nuanced. We all know these cases. For example, locally significant, you might note which objects were board-related or politically sensitive. Scope of influence and institutional relevance, for example, one possible approach is to assign a ranking system, such as highly relevant, moderately relevant, relevant, or slightly relevant within each of the categories. This may be easier accomplished if one were to create relevancy categories such as Part of the institution's purpose, our founding purpose. Directly mission related. Meets the needs of a defined user group. Secondary, but easy to accomplish. Secondary, but a staff time sink. We all can define these. In the second approach, the evaluator could then score the created categories for ease of use. Categories A, B, and C would score as highly relevant, while categories D and E would be either moderately relevant or relevant depending upon the final list of categories created. Putting it all together, the definition of value categories, user groups, relationship types, scope of influence, and institutional relevance are being developed from an internal dialogue that the collections holding community, that's the museums, libraries, archives, that we're having with each other. This is an ongoing organic process we are trying to capture, and our goal here today is to take these ideas with your help and create a toolbox of useful information and approaches to more effectively engage and foster potential support communities in order to create broad-based support for our institutions and their collections. Your ideas and input are not only welcome, but needed, and we look forward to working with you to facilitate these crucial conversations that are so necessary to garner support. what I wanted to talk about as the example is I have asked I have a workshop that a worksheet that goes with this and I have sent it out to individuals and I've asked people to get back with me so that hopefully they'll give me a case study and once I have several case studies I'd like to publish this and show how it works. Well, Reedfield Historical Society has been an excellent uh, group that ran through this and there was some real surprises in, in what they determined were primary category objects. Years ago, one of their historical society workers had gone through the, the museum and, and archival collection and recorded all the names of significance in those documents. It turns out that that work by that researcher ended up being a primary significance because those were the names they could go after, like in our community, the, the local um, hospital individual, was named in that, or the local grocer is named, and you said, here's your name. What was equally interesting and important was they had a value-added user, which turned out to be summer residents, who had come to Maine and bought a house. And they came in and they wanted to know who owned the house before them, and is there, are there any historic photos of it? What they did is they linked those individuals giving, they said, why don't you research this information for us and add more about the house and who owned it before you? And then they said, and we're gonna have a a special home association group where you guys can all get together and we'll do a dinner and that dinner will pay for all the disadvantaged kids to come during the school year to our historical society. So they linked it, It it was great and it works very effectively. And I was talking about this to a group like we're talking today, and remember I said unassessed users? And somebody piped up and said, yes, the realtors, they would wanna know this to link it to houses. And suddenly you have another unassessed user you've never taken a look at that could change the whole conversation and who you might target for assistance. Thank you.
4: Well, thank you. I, I feel like I'm batting cleanup and I'm not sure I'm up to the task right now at 5 o'clock. Um, Colorado's Connecting to Collections uh, tools created. We had a number of partners, of course, as well Colorado Historical Society, Colorado Wyoming Association of Museums. Society of Rocky Mountain Archivists, Colorado State Library, and uh, BCR, my former employee, employer, employee, wow, that's (laughs) moving me up the scale a little bit. Okay, all right, really, five o'clock. We, of course, uh, like many others, did a statewide preservation survey, um, and our statewide preservation survey, one of the findings, primary findings, people reported was that they just there was no more room and I think the photo here documents very well what they were talking about um what was interesting about this is that when we followed up and did some on-site preservation surveys aft around the state um, we found that perhaps there was room um... if we had some education and maybe some strong curatorial decision-making uh, practice statewide. And so um, one of the themes that came out of our project, um, we were doing our statewide survey and our site surveys to determine uh, the themes that we would talk about in a workshop, uh, two, a couple of workshops that we would do. And uh, we came up with seven different themes. Um, Curatorial decision-making was not one of the ones that we started out with, but based on our site surveys, that that really sort of came up, came higher. Um, Things that were identified both on-site and in the online survey included low-cost to no-cost environmental controls, collection policy development information was needed, Um, Information on the care of digital media collections. And in this case, we're talking about the media themselves, not the digital, born digital files. Um, Questions about, or the ethics of deaccessioning, information about deaccessioning... um, information about how to use your collections to connect to the local community was an area that we wanted to focus on. Sustainability and preservation and preventive care, of course, and as I said, curatorial decision-making. What we did is we had two day-long workshops, one held in conjunction with the Colorado Wyoming Association of Museums annual meeting, and we had one with the Society of Rocky Mountain Archivists. Um, And in those two workshops, we presented these seven different topics. Uh, Victoria Montana Ryan was a conservator that we hired to come in and put on these workshops for us. She did a great job. And then we lassoed her into the studios, and I use that term uh, broadly, A basement room with a big bright green wall and we pointed a video camera at her and made sure uh, and she did two to five minute presentations short very snappy uh, presentations on these particular themes and we've loaded them all up on YouTube and so they're not perfect they are not the best videos that you will ever see in the world but their content and, and forgive the snappy um, music in the background but uh, the content I think is is uh, very good so I'm going to go ahead and just play a minute or so and uh, you'll see what's there oh where is the speaker come on Hello, I'm Victoria Montana Ryan and I'm talking about something, okay, sorry, I'm not very good at this. We didn't test this ahead of time, technology, okay, so Victoria is talking about curatorial decision making, she's very good, Um, trust
1: us. And I'd
4: like you to see all of these and use these tools. I'm so sorry.
3: Unmute.
4: Oh, unmute. Oh, there it is. There we go. We get good feedback. not even sure where the speaker is. In any event, I, I think we've all got the point. It's a bright green screen. They're on YouTube and you have the links. They're on YouTube and you have the links. It is 5 o'clock. Um, been a long day. So really, uh, she did, I really, I'm sorry. I like Victoria too much to stop her right there. Maybe, there we go. So we move on to um, then some slides with resources. And some of the, uh, sort of recap some of the things that she said. So, you know, first things first, things to consider before you acquire them, the relevancy, uh, authenticity, the legal status, the the ability to care for the collections before you ever even take them in. Um, Some of those kinds of things. And then some resources at the end. Like I said, I think you can probably hear the snappy music, if not her text. So those are some of the tools that are up there. We'd love you to play them. We'd love you to rate them. We'd love you to share them with everybody. We'd love you to use them um, in any way that you see fit. As I said, they're not perfect, uh, but they're very good, I think, uh, resources. So that's, that's it. Thank you.
0: So, um, I think the, the thing that we saw was we have a wide variety of tools that are either ready for us to use right now or are in development. And I know many of the projects out here have these type of tools to share. Uh, some of you may be just finishing your planning grants, may be able to use some of these uh, ideas for that. Some of you who are developing implementation grants or or who are looking at local funding or state funding to carry some of your ideas forward may like some of these ideas too. Um, it was really interesting for me to see this idea of the value of collections coming up, uh, which is something that all of us talk about, but Paula has really done an excellent job on uh, taking a a good hard documented look at um, the, the topics that come up in our discussions. Curatorial decision-making, the ethics of deaccessioning, uh, and I mean, that is something that people have talked about but have been very scared, they've talked about it and then hid behind tables at some of the meetings that I've been at, and sustainability and uh, the, the care. Uh, so topics, again, that are of interest and that are on everybody's uh, uh, list, but now we have a resource that can address those. Uh, the, the things that are being done for fundraising. All of us, I think, will be charging over to the site that Wendy is talking about uh, to take a look at some of the funding. And then this whole stair step idea, I think that that is one of the things. The first time I heard Christine talk about that, I was just dumbstruck. I thought it was just a great idea. And hopefully that might be something where, as a national tool, we might be able to develop that in the future. So we have, oh Lord, we have like negative one minute for questions. But um, are there. Okay, all right. Um, if there are questions, um, I can pass the, the mic around between our presenters. Any questions on the, the projects uh, and ideas and products that we've talked about today? Yes, Scott. Is CaliforniaPreservation.org a 501c3 and just a little bit more information about the organization?
2: Um, No, we're not that formalized. We're a work group that lives from grant to grant. (laughs) We've been funded for several years through the LSTA grants through our state library, and um, actually it's been over 10 years now, but that has kind of been the group that then has spawned West Pass and then the Connecting to Collections group. So it's just an informal group that um, has representatives from a number of different heritage organizations in California. Yes. This is West Pass,
1: other the a similar
2: organization? wondering if West Pass has any other, are there any other models around the country that are similar? Tom, our
0: do you know? I can, I can talk a little bit about okay. that. Um, West Pass, the thing that's interesting about that is that it's really almost a virtual uh, field services center um, there are a lot of good brick and mortar field services center that do work in actual preservation and conservation, uh, the conservation center for art and historic artifacts in Philadelphia, NEDCC uh, the, ba- the Balboa Center in San Diego um, and then some of the field services like uh, we have at Amigos and Lyris. Um so there. are there. are There are a number of these sites uh, throughout the country. There are some areas where there are some geographical gaps, um, but there are a number of groups and you'll find them under the the sort of headline of Regional Alliance for Preservation. And that's where all of these groups have sort of come together to give some basic information. Yes, many of them funded by NEH. Very good point to, to emphasize. Other questions? Yes, at the far back there, yes. With the success of some of the uh, the stair step activities and the levels people were at, museums were highly ranked. Were there differences between the types of museums?
1: Uh, we I think the differences were more related to the size of the institution and the amount of funding. And in Georgia, that really varies. Some of the art museums were a little more um, higher up in the scale. And my suspicion is the correlation in there is, is more resources. But we, we didn't drill that far into the data. Okay.
0: Any other questions? I think uh, we will have in the uh, mounted version of this uh, with the conference information uh, the email addresses for all of our presenters here and we will also potentially try to put some of the links that you've seen uh, that are not on the handouts um, uh, up there as well so you can get to these projects. But one of the things that I think is very important here is these are tools you can use and we want you to use them to actually test them as much as possible. Lee's materials just went up very recently paula is still in the process of working with her project and uh, wendy is just launching uh, some activities as well
3: there's a complementary component to the values assessment that we're attempting to do in maine and that is to come up with some form of local regional and national um, monies or access to monies. We used to have the Cultural Resource Information Center. One of the things we're trying to do is look at grants and foundations and then label them according to which values do they pay for, because it's easier for a small historical society to say, I need something that values human health. Okay, here's the grants you would go after. And maybe if we could make these distinctions, um, then what we're hoping to do is have a panel that looks at the different um, organizations they would send in their assessments, and they would be ranked against each other within their categories, and then perhaps they would get use of a grant writer for a couple for for the year to target these money sources. Something that would allow targeting of those different uh, strategic areas.